This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time. Our guest today on Campus Voices is Brittany Jones-Cooper. It was a 2008 graduate from the College of Journalism and Mass Communications, where she majored in broadcasting and has had quite a life interviewing all kinds of folks in a career that has spanned a variety of different publications and networks, Uh, most recently doing some stuff for Yahoo, where she, among other things, was a reporter hosting a show called um, Unmuted, which provided a platform for underrepresented voices. She was also a host at the Build series, a media platform featuring long-form interviews with actors and musicians and athletes and authors, and is now a freelancer doing work for all kinds of folks, again, sort of on a one-on-one basis. And she joins us from her home base, still in New York, correct? Still in New York. Hello, Rick. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here. Nice to have you with us. And yeah. uh, Brittany was from Omaha originally, and I uh, just was talking with students this week in our new student enrollment program for the university's summer enrollment area and had some folks express an interest in wanting to work in media in New York. And I thought, I know somebody who's doing that. So uh, there's the yes. next generation of folks waiting here in the uh, wings to be the new you. So we want to talk about futures today and how Uh, The industry looks for the folks who are just coming into our program now, but also how it's affecting you and where you see things going. To start with, um, Omaha native, what was it that attracted you to a degree in the College of Journalism and Mass Communications and and brought you to Lincoln from Omaha? Yeah, you know, it's it's, um, a a story that is pretty common. You know, I grew up in Omaha. I went to Papillion La Vista High School, actually. Um, And so I had visited the university and had, you know, seen the J school and felt really comfortable with it. And truth be told, I was actually going to go to Mizzou my uh, senior year. And I had like picked a roommate and had a scholarship and everything. But then I got offered a a different scholarship to UNL. And it sort of just put a new lens on what the J school could provide for my future. And it just all together seemed like a better choice for me. And I do not regret it at all. I think there's so many opportunities that opened up for me. that came from attending UNL. So it's the best decision I made for my career. Um, and I love that it was just, you know, 45 minutes from home. So I could also do my laundry and visit my mom on weekends if I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, go home, cooked meal once in a while up the Absolutely. road. Absolutely, and see the family and stuff, especially since I moved to New York right after I graduated. So I'm actually thankful that I had those four years to still be close to home. Looking back on the time at UNL, these 15 years after graduation, are there still some uh, remembrances, memories, uh, students or other faculty that, uh, that you remember vividly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I um, grew up watching Trina Creighton on the Channel 6 News, and she is a Black woman, and I didn't see a lot of Black women on TV at that time, and so she was an early inspiration. And then when I got to UNL, she was starting her second act as a professor. So that for me was a, a a true honor because not only that did I get to ask her questions and just learn from her, but she was the first person to really encourage me and to really tell me, you've got it, you've got the goods, like this is what we need to work on, but I believe in you. Um, and I think at that phase of my career, I needed that affirmation. And so when I think back about my experience there, Trina is always like super foundational. Um, I also loved just the access we had to the cameras and the editing equipment and the computers and 
I was that kid who I spent a lot of extra time in Anderson Hall. Like I spent a lot of late nights and a lot of weekends working on projects. And um, it it was an early passion of mine that is still a passion of mine. I still spend hours editing podcasts and things like that. So um, it was just like a really formative time and I was super excited. And that energy is something that grew at UNL for sure. Um, so those are the things that pop out the most. Now, you have been working in New York, but that didn't, uh, the experience with New York and with the network started long before you graduated, even before your junior year, you had a pretty cool internship opportunity. Tell us about that. I did, which came through Anderson Hall, actually. Um, every week, the university would send out an email with internship opportunities. Still and do. One of them, yeah, still do. See, kids, make sure you click that email <laughs> to open it because there's some goodness in there. Um so there was this national competition to be Katie Kirk's intern at the CBS Evening News. And this was 2007. And I thought this was a shot in the dark, but I had to submit a 90 second news package, which we had just learned to make a news package. Um, so I knew how to make one. Um, and you had to submit it. And I did it. And Katie Kirk picked my video. So I got to spend the summer before my senior year in New York City at the CBS Evening News as Katie Kirk's intern. Um, she also let me go over and spend some time at 48 hours and 60 minutes. I got to shadow national correspondence. Um, yeah, just sort of a game changing experience. And really that summer solidified so many things for me. So then I came back my senior year at Lincoln, just like fired up, <laughs> just like ready to go. And knowing that New York was a real possibility, you know, because that, before it just sort of seemed like a dream. But after I got to work in a network newsroom and be around people of that caliber, I understood like, okay, this is the path to do that. So game changing. There are students here who say, well, but I'm from Omaha. I'm from Lincoln. I'm from Kearney. I'm from Hastings, Scotts Bluff, wherever. Uh, man, New York is just such a whole different vibe. I'm just, uh, there's no way a kid like me can make it there. What did you learn about yourself and your training and your preparation to be successful once you got to New York as an intern? Yeah, I mean, first is you really have to love it. You really have to be passionate about storytelling, deeply empathetic um, in like interviewing people and getting to know their stories because the work is long and the pay is low. And from the beginning, even until now, there are fluctuations. And so you really have to love it. And so I learned that early on that I really didn't mind working a lot, like I enjoyed it. And that was a huge piece, you have to enjoy it. But also um, in those early days moving to New York City, the transition transition was incredibly difficult. I mean, the first six months were um, unlike anything that I had expected. And I actually put myself into therapy uh, after six months in New York, just to help deal with the, that transition. And I just tell young people that like, it is a big deal when you move from Nebraska to New York City. I mean, you could not pick, you know, to more different places. And so all of it is you can be dedicated to the work and putting yourself in the work and that's super important. Uh, but the earlier you learn to also take care of yourself and to make time for yourself and to learn some of those healthy tools to deal with stress um, are also really crucial in this industry. So uh, that's the thing I tell people, I'm like, dive in, do the work, love it, but make sure you're making some time for yourself because it is uh, an industry that will wear you down really quickly. Uh, especially when you move to New York City and you start moving with some of these big dogs. <laughs> well, and you continued to uh, to move with a lot of the big dogs. You came back to your senior year and became the first ever Nike field reporter. How did that come about? 
You know, Rick, I was really big into video competitions <laughs> in these early days um, because I was from Nebraska and it almost felt like I needed a lottery ticket to get out in some way. Like I don't, I didn't know what the path looked like. So I started entering these competitions. So that was another national competition that I found online. And I had to submit a video of me, like how I would interview famous athletes. And I made it kind of funny and quirky and they picked it. So yeah, I, I spent most of my senior year at Lincoln, uh, not at Lincoln, not in Lincoln. I was traveling around the country to Nike events. Um, I got to go to NBA All-Star Weekend and I interviewed LeBron James and Serena Williams. And it was just like this amazing experience while I was trying to get my final credits to graduate. Um, <laughs> I, it was not advisable. I had like a perfect GPA up until that year. Um, but that same token, everybody at the university was super proud and very excited. So I uh, definitely, it was like a team effort to kind of get me graduated because I I was working already. Well, and you got to meet another one of your childhood idols there and Jackie Joyner-Kersey. That must have been really exciting for you. Yes, you did your research, Rick. That's my girl. <laughs> yeah, I grew up running track, a big track family. Actually, some of my nieces and nephews are running track you know, now. So it's a family sport that we love. And she was such a motivator for me. I remember watching her in the 1996 Olympics. And so when I got to actually sit down and interview her with Nike, I it was one of the first interviews where I kind of lost my cool <laughs> um, just for like 30 seconds so I could gush, oh. um, you know, and just tell her how much I loved her. These days, I'm a lot more cool around celebrities. But uh, back then, I definitely just let her know how much she impacted my life and just that, that ambition and that drive to kind of chase down goals. So, yeah, I mean, between the Katie Kirk internship and then the Nike job, uh, the last two years of college were a ride, but super fun. And like I said, everything I was doing was being so supported by the J school. So it was like I was learning, but also then putting what I was learning into practice almost immediately. So. And then back to work for Katie Couric for a while after college. So that uh, everything kind of came full circle and you were sort of in New York City permanently after that, right? Yeah, it's a ping pong. You know, um, I was at I was a local reporter in Omaha, actually, for like four months. Um, but it was a recession. It was 2009 and it was sort of like a hard time to get any sort of local reporting job. Um, so I actually moved back to New York City uh, to mentor kids in this summer pro or in this year long program. I was just like, let me sort of take the heat off myself. But and this is why I always encourage young people to just continue to feed your passions is because I started a blog during that time just to sort of chronicle my transition. And I put my voice in it, a lot of personality, and Katie's assistant would read it because she had met me during our internship. So she would read my blog and she saw that I was back in New York City. And then there became an opening in their office for a second assistant. Uh, so I had moved to New York City and I was here for like a month before Katie Kirk's office reached out to me and said, hey, we have this opportunity. Would you like it? And I said, heck yes. Uh, so then I spent the next two years as Katie's uh, assistant slash production assistant. Um, and I always say that that was my grad school. You know, a lot of people will go to like Columbia grad school to get their journalism degrees. And I did two years at the CBS Evening News with Katie Kirk and learned pretty much anything you could want to learn. So game-changing experience. And she's still a friend and mentor to me. I ask that. Okay. Because I read her newsletter every day in my yeah. email. I wondered if, uh, if you were still in contact with her. So 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I worked at her talk show for two years as a producer, and she also made me an on-camera digital contributor uh, as well. Uh, and then I worked at Yahoo at the same time as her. And then just in, in recent years, you know, like she is somebody who I can go to lunch with and pick their brain. Um, you know, I just helped her hire a new assistant. Uh, so we're in, in we're in contact, you know, she, nice. she thanked me in her last book. Um, because I read it early and sort of gave her my thoughts on it. I mean, I can't at 21 could never imagine that our dynamic would grow to this very friendly place, but I'm really thankful that it has. That networking you always told you about in, in college pays off getting to know people and staying with them throughout. So you have to, I mean, yeah. and if it's an internship, you really have to make yourself memorable. Um, and fun fact about Katie Couric, her mother was born in Omaha. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. And her grandfather was an architect who designed some ho homes in Happy Hollow. So after my internship, I found those homes and took pictures of them and sent them to her as a thank you. So this is what I mean. She like couldn't forget me if she wanted to because <laughs> I'd given her this precious family gift, you know, so make yourself memorable interns. <laughs> Well, you did a lot of traveling for uh, Yahoo Travel, including, I noted, one thing that just made me incredibly envious. You got to swim with whale sharks yes. in Cancun. They are my all-time favorite aquatic critter. What was that like? Rick, you can go do it. I think in August, they that's their migration brings them to Isla Mujeres like every year. You can do it. That's like a four-hour flight for you, Rick. They're <laughs> such majestic I creatures. I believe in you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that was... Yahoo Travel was 18 months of traveling around the world and, and being paid to do that. Um, one of the most unbelievable jobs I've ever had. And certainly experiences like swimming with 30 feet whale sharks uh, in Cancun, uh, where you're so close, you can touch them. If you get too close, you will get hit in the face with a fin, which I was. Um, but it was a bruise, I, a bruise <laughs> I wore with pride because I was just brave of myself for getting in the water. Um, but those sort of experiences and then getting to write about them and getting to like just share my stories was it almost seemed silly that I was being paid to do that. <laughs> well, one thing I've noted throughout your career, other than maybe with the whale sharks, uh, is a tendency to want to do one on one interviews with people. And maybe the sharks gave you a great interview, too. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I've watched a lot of your work uh, and seen a lot of your work and, and read a lot of your work. And even through the, the most recent work that you did with Yahoo, including work with dealing with themes of race and gender and LGBTQ and identity, all sorts of things, you seem really in your element and most comfortable when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Is that is that an accurate assessment? Do you really enjoy doing the one-on-one -on -one interviews? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, yes, that's all I want to do. Um, I grew up watching Oprah, and I think there is so much that can be healed through conversation. Um, and so my goal is always just to create a very safe space for people to come as they are. And I feel like in this current climate that feels sort of hard for people to trust you. Um, and so it is like my biggest honor to sit down with someone and is just like really create a safe space for them to open up. Um, so Unmuted was a really amazing opportunity for us to do that. Uh, talking mainly to Black, Brown, Indigenous, LGBTQ activists and people who have been activated in their communities after witnessing something that, you know, disturbed them. And so for me, it's the most powerful tool we have 
And a goal of mine, a passion of mine is just to be somebody who can facilitate those conversations. So it is my favorite thing to do. If you give me 45 minutes with somebody, it's like, it's a fun, it's fun for me. <laughs> well, now we're doing this one over Zoom uh, because of our difference in distance and, and location, but we're coming out of a three-year sort of isolation place where we did pretty much everything on Zoom. People who were stockholders in the company early on probably realized they'd made a good bet. <laughs> but uh, what did that change, if anything, about the way that you do your business and the way that you connect with people? Is it is it do you feel it's better when you can actually be in the same physical space with somebody and, and interact that way rather than just be talking box to talking box? Yeah, I mean, the highlight of the past couple of years for me has been getting back to in-person. Um, so much is lost through this green dot <laughs> um, on the screen, especially when you are asking people to open up to you about their identity or hardships. It's just so hard for me to, as a pretty empathic person, to to make that space feel as safe as it can through a, a, a screen. So uh, we did it, you know, and I think we were able to do it in a respectful way, but a hundred percent, I think this role as a journalist is just, you have to be boots on the ground. Um, I think you have to be in those spaces. You have to be looking in people's faces. Um, that's part of the job. So I'm excited that we're getting back to that. And I've been, uh, I also moderate events, uh, conversa conversations at events like panels. And so getting back to do that more and more has been really game changing for me. Um, because I went from build series where I was doing live interviews in front of a small studio audience. I mean, I really sort of had like a talk show. Um, and then, you know, March 13th of 2020, that was just over. So it was quite a transition for me. And the transition back to in-person has been joyful. I appreciate it more than I ever thought I would, for sure. That's sort of how we were. We went away for spring break in 2020 and didn't come back for 18 months. And uh, we, we had two weeks to convert all of our courses over to online. And many of us had never taught full time online before. Many of our students had never attended a course full time. I had one major who told me she had to learn 10 new software programs to finish out the semester that she was a third of the way through because we all switched to all different types of instruction and co and communication and coordination logistics. It was, uh, it was, it was a, a challenge for everybody. And uh, I can't I, imagine, especially in a, in a program like Anderson hall, like everything is so in person, everything is like, you can pop in your professor's office and you're constantly working on projects together. I mean, yeah, shifting all of that to fully remote would just be daunting. It was a challenge, but it also forced us to do some things we didn't know that we could do and to learn some processes and some techniques that we did not know that we could do, some of which we have, by virtue of their value, continued on through today. So in thinking about that, now that we're out of the pandemic and we can do things more or less the way we'd like to get back to doing that, are there some things that you learned about yourself and your interviewing ability and your professional skills through the pandemic? The biggest thing I learned from the pandemic is definitely that I'm not my job. I think before the pandemic, I was very wrapped up in my identity as a journalist reporter in this role first. And I think during the pandemic and especially launching Unmuted during the pandemic, and um, there was a vulnerability during that time in my interviews and I think I got a little less me focused and a little more we focused. Um, I'm like 
less ambitious in my career for me and more trying to think holistically about how I can use my skills to sort of like heal some of the things I've seen exposed over the last couple of years. So I think like my actual purpose in the industry has just been a little more streamlined. Um, it's just changed how I, I work in almost every way. <laughs> uh, I work less, but I work more effectively. And I just lead with empathy uh, and a little less ambition. I like the way you phrased that. We have a staff member here who says, uh, simply being busy is not the same thing as being productive. So you're yeah. you're channeling your time in, in more productive ways, it sounds. Yeah. And that's where, you know, I'm freelance now. And I think I was afraid of being freelance for a really long time, but actually it's allowed me to work on my passions and kind of create opportunities out of those passions. Um, so it's like, I'm happier in it. I'm working less, but working smarter. And um, I think that's hopefully the lesson we learned. Like you move to New York city, you get on that wheel immediately and you're just sometimes working for the sake of working. Um, and I think we all learned that that's not the best way to operate. So I'm still yeah. really passionate about the work though, but I just try to do it with more grace. <laughs> we have a number of alums who have been freelancers most of their working career, but this was relatively new to you. You'd always had a, a network or a home base or yeah. a, a company to to lean in toward. And so now you're fully freelance. Was there, even with all the confidence you gained over the years, was there initially sort of a moment of deep breath? I got this. Oh, I am deep breathing every day, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> every day I start with a deep breath. Okay, what are we going to do today? Do we get this? Um, no, truthfully, I was lucky enough to have some overlap. So I started uh, freelance producing a podcast while I was working at Yahoo. So when Yahoo was done, I've still been working on this project. So it's given me some footing of I have something that I'm accountable to every week. Um, what it has done is forced me out of my comfort zone. And I'm not somebody who ever asks for help ever. Um, and I've, I'm learning to do that. I'm using this network that I've grown over the last 15 years and I'm just trying to do what a, a good journalist does. It's just make those connections. And at this point I have friends everywhere. So it's not been a painful process. Um, and it's allowed me to move more boldly because I have always worked at a network, whether it was ABC, CBS, or Yahoo. Yahoo was a network. Um, so it is riskier, but I feel empowered in it right now. I told myself like, I'll give myself a year to do it and see how I feel. Tell us about your podcast. As someone who has uh, taught some podcast coursework here in our own college, I'm always intrigued to hear about uh, the ones yeah. being done by alums. So podcasting is like this whole frontier, right? And I, um, I'm always somebody who wants to understand the medium before I start hosting. And there's like so many podcast podcast hosts. So I thought I want to produce because I always see pro producing as my trade, whether it's in TV or audio. It's like a, a trade, a skill that I love to develop. So. Um, I'm working on my second project and it's a docu-style podcast and it's been a really fun challenge for me because it's my first docu-style podcast. But I think, again, when production is your trade, it's sort of some of the same things I learned with video production and just uh, <laughs> retraining my brain a little bit. So it's been really fun. Hopefully that will launch this fall. That's our plan. That's exciting. Yeah, it's been dope. <laughs> Well, as we're sort of transitioning into the futures side of this uh, discussion, in your ongoing interest in and, and producing of documentaries for social justice causes, this is coming at a time when we are also seeing a, a certain amount of pushback on some of those issues nationally. 
uh, either for political gain or just for social uh, rebounding or whatever you want to call it. How uh, you obviously must be paying attention to some of those forces. How is that uh, driving you, shaping what it is that you do? Is it affecting you at all? Uh, deeply. Yeah, it's affecting me deeply. I'm a, I'm a black woman who grew up in predominantly white areas and has worked in predominantly white spaces for the majority of my career. So uh, for me to be using my voice is for me to also be speaking up for myself and my experiences and the experiences of people that I know and love. So um, everything happen, happening right now in the media, in Texas and Florida specifically, um, it just makes me wanna be louder. And so that was the reason, reason for launching Unmuted where these were voices that were underrepresented on other places, but with me, you're gonna get a megaphone, you know? Um, so it, it has only deepened my work. And if you look at my career, I've been a little um, non-committal when it comes to a beat. You know, I've done travel, I've done finance, uh, I've done news, I've done lifestyle. And while I still see myself as a lifestyle reporter, um, this ability to tackle social justice issues is very much how I brand myself now. So it will continue to be a part of my work forever. Um, and this era of what's happening has only fueled that even more, like the importance of continuing to force people to have like real conversations. Um, yeah. So maybe while lifestyle historically took on more of a feature lighthearted kind of feel to it, the 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 take you're looking at it right now is no this is truly the life of the lifestyle part of it yes. lifestyle when you think about how this you know i think wellness and mental health can fit in lifestyle as well so when you think about how the social justice events happening in our country are really impacting our bodies ourselves our minds it is a, a wellness thing it is a lifestyle thing we do need to address these issues that are impacting our identities and the ways that we're inter intersectional. It's just an unavoidable thing. We have to start healing some of this division. Um, and while it may sound very, you know, Pollyanna, I just, I, I think this is like how I can help. <laughs> Using your voice for the voiceless. That's That seems like one of the things that journalists have always tried to do. Yeah, so. and I've got a loud voice, Rick. I mean, volume's always at 11, so... <laughs> Well, looking at the industries, uh, specifically the the media industries that you're you've been very involved in and continue to be involved in, uh, you've been on kind of the I don't want to say the roller coaster, but you've seen it from all sides at this point, including now being a freelancer. What are some of the biggest, as you look back on it, the biggest industry changes that you've observed and have lived through in the fifteen years since you graduated? So many, Rick. I mean, honestly, like everything has changed since I graduated. The jobs I've had didn't exist when I graduated. Um, so being adaptable is just like a prerequisite in today's media landscape. And, um, you know, I came up under Katie Couric and people ask her all the time, like, how do I do what you did? And I watched her from day one say, you can't do it how I did it because that doesn't exist anymore. And so I think we've all had to collectively grieve that is that you can't just like, hop from local station to station and then get your national shot and then end up on like it happens for some people but nowadays you really you really have to forge your own path and it's difficult it is just a difficult landscape so the way we get jobs has changed the jobs that exist change um the culture 
of media has changed. It's gone from like, you know, I've worked in newsrooms and then I've worked in like digital media companies and there's a very distinct different culture. Um, money is hard to come by. There's less money than ever, I feel like, uh, with traditional broadcast. Digital media pays well. I stayed at Yahoo so long because they paid very well, way more than any of the networks. Um, so just everything has changed and I've just found myself having to be incredibly adaptable, which is something I always knew I'd have to be, but not this much, you know? But I do remember at the J School of Barney teaching us about convergence. And that was like such a new thing of like the internet and the TV like coming together. And, and I remember us learning about it and being like, oh, okay, we got to like figure out this internet thing. Uh, and here we are. Have you embraced <laughs> social media? <laughs> to a degree, to a degree. I, I think social media can be incredibly problematic. Um, I use Instagram to maintain a presence so people know what I'm doing. I don't overpost. I have a hard time um, believing that I need to post to gain followers or to get like, I'm not interested in that game. I'm sure I'm missing out on some of the benefits uh, that can come from that. I just hate being like beholden to that. So, I, you know, social media for me is always something like you should, you know, create a presence and have fun. But the way people were using Twitter to like get their news and always makes me like a little nervous. Um, as we've learned specifically with Twitter, how harmful that can be. Right. We're, That's we're also my personality. I have a hard time like sticking with having to like post on a schedule and I'd yeah. rather just be creating the content. And if people find it, they find it. I was thinking that because one of the things that I know a lot of our uh, reporting graduates have had to do is to you know, get to the scene. And then the first thing you do is tweet about it, that I'm here and I'll tell you more later. And then you get into the reporting and it's, it's added another layer certainly for what a lot of field reporters have had to deal with. But uh, we're right in the middle of it because since our students have to know how to use it, we're trying to teach them responsible use of social yeah. media and when to ignore it and when to not get down that rabbit hole of, oh, yeah, you too, and all that sort of thing. Exactly. There is a balance. And also, like, when it starts in impacting your news gathering, like, are you in your phone or are you paying attention to your surroundings? Are you looking for the right? Like, it, it just should not hinder what you're doing. Uh, and maybe I have ADD, but it does hinder what I do. So I just, you know, I check in on it, I, but I leave it. But I also am not doing news anymore. So I do understand the urgency with news, but I left news because I, I really didn't like the urgency. So what would you define as the biggest forces driving change in the media content production fields? What's causing all of this seismic upheaval? Uh, I think like, the marketing and ad side, at least when it came to digital content, is a huge factor that I had to like learn more about and start to understand. Because I think journalists can be super idealistic. We have an idea. We're like, this is important. This is why. Here's my news peg. I want seven minutes to tell this story. And they're like, well, we uh, need a sponsor to pay for this. Or we're only going to let you run a three-minute story because that's what the ad supports or that's what... So that business side of it really starts to hinder your content and the kind of content you're creating. Like if they can't sell it to an advertiser, they don't really care. Um, and that's frustrating. So I think that hinders creativity. I think that hinders the sort of content that we're putting out there because if it's not going to be a moneymaker, they don't care. But what if it's about a very important social topic that people need to learn about? 
Um, so that at, for me at Yahoo, that was always a point of frustration. Like unless we could get it like sponsored or um, they really didn't care if it was like a good story. So okay. I think that hinders some of the stuff going on right now, at least with digital media. It's like, if they can't sell it, they don't, they don't care. Having just wrapped up uh, teaching one of our, our, well, the same ethics course that you took when you were here, the mass media ethics and society course. Yeah. Um, I'm always curious to know what folks who are working day to day in the, in the media content creation era, uh, areas think are the ethical challenges that you see moving mm -hmm. forward and what it is that you want to do. What are the things that make you stop and, and give pause before moving on? Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, you know, when you have an editor and that editor wants you to write something and that's your assignment, that's always going to be something you have to check in, you know, check in. Do I feel comfortable? It is your job to write that article, but sometimes you're like, I don't necessarily believe this or I don't necessarily. So that's always, if you have an editor, that's always going to be a, a factor. Um, ethically, I haven't encountered anything that was too egregious. I just know like, as a whole, the industry struggles. But as far as my experiences, ethically, clickbait and headlines are always like the easiest way to sort of be misleading and something that you should watch. I mean, a lot of times you'll write something and then they'll put a headline on it or a teaser that is just like completely false, but they're doing it to, to appease to marketers or they're doing it to like get clicks, but it makes you feel kind of dirty. <laughs> um, so especially when I was working at like a large digital media company, sometimes that happened and you're like, that's not what the story is about. Um, so definitely you have to watch that and you have to be ready to challenge it when you when you need to. Um, I was once asked to interview somebody who I just fundamentally could not stomach. Uh, that's happened once in my career. And I said, no. And they found somebody else to do it. So you know, just checking in with your own morals is super important because you will be led to do things that are questionable. So since we're meeting right now with our uh, new crop of uh, incoming fresh persons to the college, what are, uh, looking at it from your perspective backwards to your days here now, what are some of the uh, skills and, and uh, processes that you think all students in a media content college like ours are going to need to possess coming out of school? Yeah. Skill-wise, I know chat GPT is going to tell you something different, but writing to me is the most foundational, important thing that you should work on and continue to nurture. Because um, if you are a producer who can write, you will never be without a job. If you are a host or reporter who can write, you will be in demand. Um, that is the skill that I have, I think has saved me through rounds of layoffs. Um, but also that I've continued to nurture. Like I just took a 10 week writing course at Gotham writing because I was like, I need, I just want to brush up on this. So writing for sure. Don't, don't think that that's not important. Um, a good script will keep you in employed forever. Um, and then I think when it comes to like being on camera, um, the authenticity thing is so easy to say, but really being yourself, it took me maybe a couple of years to understand what that meant. Um, so I think really showing up authentically is what separates you and what keeps you from just being another talking head, because we've all seen just like every talking head, um, possible, but I have found that as I, especially at build series, when I just started being myself, 
telling little corny dad jokes. And I talk really fast and sometimes I stutter and like all these little things uh, made, made it better. So I think not being afraid to be yourself is, you know, sounds super cliche, but I can't tell people that enough. No, I wanted to ask you about that because I've, I have admired watching you in your interviews seeming very comfortable. And yeah. I know how much that puts a guest at ease when the host or the interviewer is at ease. How did you find that? You say with the Build series, you learned just to become yourself. What was it that suddenly made that light go on and, and made it just more comfortable to be you? Yeah. Um, you know, at that job, I was doing one to two, sometimes three live interviews a day. And the first five I watched, the first five interviews I did, um, and I was like acting. Like I could tell that I was just sort of like reacting to them and keeping it. And I was like, well, this isn't fun for me. <laughs> like if I'm gonna be doing this with this frequency, it needs to be fun for me also. Um, so I watched the first five and then I thought, let me just like do one where I'm, you know, free and it was more fun. So I just started doing that and then people responded to it. And then I was hearing from publicists that they liked bringing people to me because it, they felt comfortable. And I think that's because I'm Nebraskan and I'm nice. And I just was just being like that to people. Um, after that though, I don't watch my interviews. I think that also helps. So I watched the first couple, but I do not watch my interviews mainly because I think that leads to me over editing. And if you are just trying to be yourself, it's hard to watch yourself and then just start picking things apart. So I think for me, it's always important to see what your on-camera presentation looks like, see if you're talking quickly, what you're doing with your hands, sort of like assess it. But I think if you get too consumed with watching yourself, you start being unkind to yourself um, and you start over editing. So that's how I got to that point. And now I just sort of, you do it and you just assume it's always going to be great. And I think that's just a coping mechanism <laughs> just so I can like leave it out there and move on. Well, once you heard that the bookers and the agents were starting to want to put their clients with you because of how comfortable you were, that must've been incredibly validating. Oh, incredibly validating. Um, yes. Especially because it was a role where there was another host doing my job as well. And he had been there first. Um, you know, so you tiptoe into those situations because I'm not trying to compete with him or, you know, but when I started getting people requesting me, it did feel good because I was like, okay, I've shown up in this space and they appreciate the work I'm doing and I'm working incredibly hard. So um, it did feel really validating. And I still see those publicists, you know, where out in the world and they remember me. So it's nice. We know that more and more of our students are will be living this sort of gig economy lifestyle here down the road. And the pandemic helped drive a lot of this. Uh, what's your day like when you're when you're in totally the captain of your own ship here? What do you what do you do to try to line up your next uh, reporting or writing gigs? Yeah, um, that has been the most interesting part. I am doing a lot of coffees, um, just reconnecting with people. It's also a really good time to reconnect with people because you haven't seen a lot of people in like two or three years because of the pandemic. So just reaching out to people. Hey, I'd love to catch up, get a coffee. I don't really ask for anything. I just more like let people know what I'm doing and what I can offer. And I always end it with like, if you if you see us collaborating, like hit me up. And that has honestly led to people being like, oh, yes. Um, for instance, my friend Leah works at CNBC and we had drinks and then she ended up booking me on the Today Show. 
um, because they have a monthly segment with the Today Show. So now that's something that I'm going to get to do again and hopefully build on that. Um, so not being afraid to call in your network, but also you don't have to be aggressive about it. You, you know, you just sort of connect with people. So I've been doing that. Um, so my day to day is working on the podcast, putting in a few hours there, reaching out emails. I'm trying to find an agent. Um, I'm talking to two or three women right now, uh, doing catch up emails with people. Uh, and then also like I go to pottery like twice a week and I read books and I play the guitar and I really just try to have balance. And I do find that having some balance makes me a little more focused on the work I need to do. Let me expand on that point because up until we had a we had a panel at the college just a few years back of distinguished alums from each of the different majors. And um, as luck would have it, because they were all chosen independently of each other from the different majors, the entire panel were made up of, of uh, professional women. And mm -hmm. they were all talking about how the work-life balance had become a much larger thing, not just for them, but for the people for whom they worked. And that was the first time I'd really heard so much concentrated attention to that phrase, the work-life balance. And now we see it all the time. In fact, the the orientation, freshman orientation we had today, there, were, there was talk about uh, how the university is, is committed to helping even incoming freshmen structure that time so that there's me time for them personally. Uh, what... How, what role that you've, you've touched on, but what role do you see that playing, not just in your future, but in the future of, of all the young people who will come after you? I mean, huge. We are collectively in a mental health crisis, right? So I think these ideas of like balance and these aren't just like concepts. These are like tactics people need to survive to some degree. We've been on that wheel working too much and now we're off the wheel and we need to figure out how to balance our lives better. So I think it will continue to be a focus and I'm happy that this younger generation is making it a priority and that, you know, colleges are providing support for that because I do think it will create a workforce that is just healthier. Um, for me personally, um, it's been game changing. Look, working in, in broadcast is like very stressful. It's just anxiety producing. My first, I was just an anxious ball in my twenties, always, because there's always a deadline. There's always something going on. Um, and so, engaging in my mental health wasn't uh, an option. At some point, I just needed to like be more balanced. So I find that if I have a big week, or let's say I, I have a Today Show segment coming up, right? And it's a really something I'm really excited about. For the week before, I'm waking up in the morning, I'm going to journal, I'm going to meditate for 15 minutes. I'm going to stretch. And if I start every day like that, my anxiety is lower. And I can walk in to my presentation or my segment, honestly feeling grounded and much better at it than I would have been if I was this anxious mess. So I have found that it just enables me to be more present in my work. Uh, I can actually sit in a 45 minute interview and be present and not be thinking about all the things I need to do because I've grounded myself for the day. It works for me. I always tell people, try it out, see if it works for you. I do think it makes you a, a happier worker because <laughs> we all have to work. So you might as well have some peace while you're doing it. Right, absolutely. Well, and toward that end, when you talk to younger people who, when when you have a conversation with a with a high school student who says, "I want to do what you do," uh, what advice do you give them? Not because thinking back to what Katie Couric says, you can't yeah. do it the same way I did. But but what do you what do you tell people? I say do it. I say follow your passions. If you love to write, write. If you love to do pottery, do pottery. If you whatever you love to do, 
as a journalist, I think you can grow that into your beat or the thing that you're covering or the documentary that you produce. Like, I think following your passions and that thing that lights you up uh, makes navigating this industry so much easier because you have to love it. As I mentioned earlier, you can't be in this for like the fame and the accolades because that's like honestly make-believe, like that doesn't exist. Uh, you really have to be following what you're passionate about. So I say early on, if you want to be Oprah one day, or you want to be Don Lennon or whoever you want to be, start with like what you love to do, what you love to cover, and then dive into that. And that I think will bring you where you want to be ultimately. Because if I think about myself, I had a video camera at 15 and I was walking around documenting everything. And I had a journal at 14 and I was writing everything down. I'm the same person I was, and I just followed those passions into a career. So that's what I can say. And I think that ultimately leads to that balance that we're all trying to achieve. But um, my ride has been up and down. It's been uncertain at points, but I have honestly always loved it because I'm doing what I enjoy. Well, I'm sure it hasn't escaped you that by having, by having a uh, an ongoing gig with a Today Show now that you and Katie Couric have one more thing in common because she obviously put her time in there with that program as well. And, she probably uh, thinks I'm like her little stalker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's very proud of you. So. Yeah, she, is, she has told me she's very proud of me, and I obviously melt when she says that. Well, in a series that talks about futures, I would be remiss in not asking you what's in yours. Are you uh, you're going to try the freelance thing for a while and see how it plays? Or are you, you kind of comfortable with where life is right now? I'm very happy with where life is. Um, this year of trying out freelance has been really exciting. And I think I've had some opportunities that I, I didn't predict were going to come my way. So I'm just following that energy. Um, you know, my dream has always been to have my own talk show style series where I can really dig into some of these topics we've been discussing, you know, and create that safe space for conversation and start to like heal some of this division in my own way. So yes, I would love my own talk show. If there's any streamers or networks looking for a host, hit me up. But uh, in the meantime, I'm just enjoying trying my hand at some of these different things within media and, you know, the podcasting has been really fun. So that might lead to something else too. So I think I'm just really open. And again, being adaptable in this industry is maybe the best way to be. So I think I'm right where I should be. Well, I'm eager to check out the podcast coming in. It'll be available this fall, correct? We're shooting for August or September. Yeah. Cool. I look forward to, to hearing that one. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. You seem really happy and I'm thrilled for you for that. Hope things continue down that same path. And thanks for being willing to take time to talk to our audience this week. Thank you, Rick. And it was so good to see you again. I haven't seen you since my J school days. So I'm happy that kids are still getting to have Professor Alloway because he's wow. he's a gem, guys. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Our guest today on Campus Voices has been Brittany Jones Cooper in the life of a freelancer working out of New York City at the time. This has been Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway. And as always, I thank you for your time. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.